0: Here, welcome back to Rupture Radio. Today I'll be discussing some fundamentals of eco socialism with Jess Spear and John Molyneux. Both have written a very good pamphlet entitled What is Eco Socialism? A link to which I'll put in the episode description. Jess is a paleo oceanographer, author, member of RISE, and editor of Rupture magazine. John is a long-standing socialist activist, author, member of People Before Profit, and editor of the Irish Marxist Review. Both are members of the Global Eco-Socialist Network, which I'll leave a link to below. Before we kick off, I'd like to thank listeners for their support up to this point, and note that anyone who supports our Patreon over the next week will receive a free copy of the pamphlet. Those who are already subscribed will also have one sent out to them. I'll reach out to people after this episode, so if anyone's interested, you'll find the Patreon link below. All right, so I'll kick us off with John and Jess. All right, thanks for joining me, Jess. Hello. And thank you for joining me, John.
1: Hi, delighted to be here. Thanks, thanks uh, very much.
0: I'm delighted that both of you are here, and uh, just to congratulate you on the release of this very good pamphlet entitled, What is Eco Socialism." Before we kind of get into the meat of things, you both might give me your background and what initially brought you to an eco socialist perspective.
2: Yeah, so I'm obviously American, you can tell from my accent. Um, I was born in Virginia. My mom and my dad were real young when they married. We were quite poor growing up. Like, we always had enough food to eat and stuff, but like, we never had what I saw other kids have. Like, we didn't have the newer clothes and the latest gadgets and so on. And, you know, for me, it was just so obvious that my parents worked really, really hard and it just didn't make a difference. Like we never got ahead. And it always struck me growing up in a country that like really sells itself on the American dream. If you work real hard, you're gonna get ahead, all of that. It's such a lie, you know, I, I got that at such a young age. Um, but it was really when I got into college that I started to see the environmental aspect of capitalism and that I read a book by Carl Sagan. I don't know if people in Ireland are familiar with Carl Sagan. He was like the Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, a while ago, but I, I read his books and I really love his books. But one of the books that I read was called Billions and Billions and it's essays on different topics ranging from abortion rights to the Cold War, and I think it was written in the late 90s, but one of the essays was on the science of global warming, and it was just overwhelming and scary for me as I think I was maybe 20 at the time, and I was protesting against the war in Iraq, and I was just getting involved in activism, and I really had no idea how I could make a difference, you know, how I could do something to stop this terrible thing from coming um, to pass. And so I thought, okay, in college I was studying biology and I thought I'll I'll go on and continue studying science and maybe I'll study climate science and I'll help us better understand the problem. Cause like at the time, um, I thought it was an issue of really not knowing enough, not understanding enough. And like, if we have more information, then oh, sure, you know, the politicians would do the right thing. I was really naive in that way. And actually my college advisor at the time, he he told me not to do my thesis on global warming because he said it was still speculative. And this was in 2002, you know? So anyway, um, I moved to Florida and I ended up doing a research master's in paleo oceanography, which is really just a big word that means studying what the ancient oceans were like, um, you know, how cold and hot they were and what was going on. I actually didn't continue and get a PhD just because there wasn't any funding with my advisor. So I left, I was working at the US Geological Survey and uh, there I was kind of investigating how do we understand what past temperatures were like from using microfossils. But at the time I was reading a lot of um, Noam Chomsky and some Howard Zinn and just getting more and more radical because nothing was being done about climate Mm -hmm. change. And I started to understand that You know, it wasn't really a problem with not having enough data. We need more mass movements. But at the time, you know, uh, it was maybe 2006, 2007, there weren't any big movements that I could see and there weren't any organizations that you could join. And so it wasn't until 2011, when I moved to Seattle, that the opportunity kind of presented itself. I was eagerly watching the development of the Arab Spring and the uprising of workers in Wisconsin, um, but then I remember in the autumn of 2011, standing in my kitchen in Seattle and just crying as I watched Democracy Now! report on uh, Occupy Wall Street down in Zuccotti Park. And I thought, oh my gosh, yes, finally the fight back has begun. We're finally going to build movements, you know, for radical change, to stop climate change, to stop war, everything, we'll take care of everything, this is, this is the beginning. Um, And on October 15th, I went down to Occupy Seattle, in downtown Seattle, and there were lots of groups that you can get involved with. And I ended up joining a group called Socialists Alternative. And through that organization, I learned about Marx and Engels. I learned about the history of the socialist movement and how I could contribute to building and fighting for a better world. And then a few years later, I read John Bellamy Foster and Kohai Saito's work on the ecological dimension of Marxist critique of capitalism. And it, it led me to conclude that, you know, we say that if you're a socialist, you also have to be a feminist too. You have to be anti-racist. You have to be implacably against all oppressions. And you have to be clear about that and not assume people understand that socialism is about the liberation of humanity. But it also led me to conclude that you also have to be environmentalists. And obviously, that's where I started from. But I came back around to that, that you have to also recognize the damage that capitalism does to our natural world, and how this is the other part of the damage that it does to us, Um, not just because of climate change, but our food systems, the loss of species, the disconnect from nature. So it was, you know, I started off as an environmentalist, then I became a Marxist, and then I became an eco-socialist. So it was coming around in a circle or a spiral, as Marxists were say, coming back to environmentalism, but at, you know, a higher understanding of, of what you could really do about it.
0: That's perfect. And what about yourself, John?
1: Well, um, I'm ever so slightly older than Jeff, so I came at this in a, in a different, by a different route. Um, I became a kind of a, a socialist, an activist, and a Marxist in a kind of big bang in 1968 great year of revolt on many different fronts um i was a student at the time uh and inspired by everything from you know the from martin luther king and malcolm x and um the may events in paris in particular where i managed to be in paris briefly during those and uh, the anti-Vietnam War movement, of course, all of those things came together. And that's when I became a, 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 a socialist and a Marxist. The environmental questions and climate change didn't really figure on our agenda much at that time, I don't think, and nor for many years afterwards, or if they did, they were marginal. Uh, and I think i it's hard for me now to say when I exactly became aware about climate change, but this was the decisive thing, was becoming aware about that. I think it was probably a gradual process in the late 90s. I had a comrade and friend who was involved with um, a campaign against climate change in in Britain and he explained a lot of the guy called Jonathan Neal, He explained the basic arguments to me which seemed which were all totally convincing for me from the beginning. I never was never skeptical about it totally convincing but then with every succeeding year it became more and more important in my, and bigger and bigger in my consciousness, more and more realising what a decisive struggle this was for the whole of humanity. Like uh, Jess mentioned, um, John Bellamy Foster in particular was important for me. When I read his book, Marx's Ecology, and again, I couldn't put a date on when I read it, but mm. somewhere around 2003, 2004, somewhere like then, it, it really changed my understanding of Marxism. So I'd been uh, a a Marxist by then for a long time. Uh, I'd written several books on Marxism in different aspects and so on. But it enlarged my view of Marxism. And I reread passages in Marx, say in the German ideology, basic things that I've read many times before, uh, with different eyes and realized how central the question of human relations with nature are to historical materialism, to Marxism, and, of course, in reality. And from that time onwards, I've been committed to the struggle against climate change and the wider environmental struggle in a broader way. Uh, And I've also, over the last few years, really come not only to conclusions I always held, actually, that it was going to be necessary to get rid of capitalism. Um, But my first engagements with the climate change movement um, this view was ra- rather dismissed. There's no time for your revolution. Forget about all that. We've just got to get, you know, this as a single issue. Uh, that was very much dismissed, but, uh, but uh, I-, I never thought that, and I never thought that capitalism was going to solve the problem. There would be lots of debates about whether it could theoretically tackle things. But I came to the conclusion that regardless of whether it could theoretically, it actually wasn't going to. That was the main point, And I think that's been borne out. Uh, but then over the last few years, I would say I've more and more come to the conclusion, not only that you need a socialist solution to mm-hmm. the problem of climate change and the wider problem of the environment, but also that the term eco-socialism was a very good one to use because it cuts through a lot of the uh, associations that exist. If you just say I'm a socialist or a communist people, large numbers of people assume that means you were a supporter of Stalinist Russia in one way or another. Uh, And a lot, you get caught up in a lot of old debates. So I think saying, using the term eco-socialist and identifying with that term claiming in that sets that all those debates, they don't go away, but they set those debates on on a new way. So I'm in favor. I'm, I, I, I'm in favor of using, I'm strongly in favor of using the term eco-socialist in the present situation.
0: Very interesting. And I guess this pamphlet is kind of a, an intro to that body of work. It deals with um, kind of multiple offshoots that connect uh, with socialism on a on a wider scale. So before we dive into some of those uh, concepts, you might just outline an initial definition of eco-socialism.
2: Um I'd start by saying, like, eco-socialism really is nothing other than recognizing that our vision of socialism has to be one that is ecologically sustainable, and that means that our fight for a socialist future has to bring forward demands that integrate environmental issues with what we need in the here and now. So, for example, you know, we want public housing, we want public housing on public land here in Ireland, but that public housing should be zero carbon, should be passive housing, it should Mm -hmm you know, use the least amount of energy um, in order to ensure that we have comfortable lives. Um, We argue for free public transport to get people out of cars. We um, demand green jobs, you know, and not just jobs in renewable energy, but also jobs that we need, filled nurses, doctors, teachers, and so on. But in the pamphlet, we expand on that a little bit and talk about eco-socialism having three principles. So firstly, that the damage that we're seeing all around us, it it doesn't come from human nature, you know, we're not a virus. This isn't happening because we're inherently greedy or whatever. (laughs) Um, It's a product of the system that we're living under. Um, And secondly, that we can't like divorce climate and environmental issues from the broader problems that we face so um, that's whether you're talking about low wages and bad working conditions in your workplace or the sexism and racism and homophobia and transphobia that people experience in their daily lives. Um, these issues, thirdly, are all interconnected, they're related, and the, the solution to them is socialist. You know? And by that, we, we mean we have to move towards a collective democratic ownership and control over all the resources that we need to live our lives um, in our workplaces and our communities, that we, the workers who do all the work, should be the ones deciding and controlling that.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, obviously uh, I'm in agreement with Jess and everything she said, we would have had difficulty writing a pamphlet together if I wasn't. Um, (laughs) You hear in the movement, often people will use the phrase Unregulate. The problem is unregulated capitalism or the problem is neoliberal capitalism. Now, it's better that they say the problem is unregulated or neoliberal capitalism than they don't mention the C-word, as I had described to me in,
2: you
1: know, one of these some uh, NGO uh, um, events where they were worried about the C-word. It's better that they say that than nothing. But my view, and I think Chess will share this view, is that uh, it's a bit of a cop-out, that expression, because the problem is capitalism. Not just that it's not the right kind of capitalism. It's not that it insta- if instead of being neoliberal capitalism, it would be uh, Keynesian capitalism. Instead of being unregulated, it would be regulated. Then we get over the, the problem. You know, if you, if you look at Stalinist Russia, you've got loads of state regulation. That doesn't solve the problem. Or China. for for example. Now, the problem is inherent in capitalism is A, a compulsion to grow and B, a profound alienation or metabolic rift with nature and uh, that uh, um, the drive to accumulate capital is something that you can't just modify. It will break through all boundaries unless you get rid of capitalism. So I think capitalism has such... Um, is the problem. And the other thing I wanted to comment on is uh, it seems to me that in all the kind of well-intentioned events that I go to about about climate change, people say they're in favour of climate justice. Mary Robinson will say she's in favour of climate justice. I think she has an institute for climate justice. Well, capitalism exudes injustice from every poor. It has It's based on economic injustice, racial injustice, gender injustice, global South injustice, imperialism, and so on. You can't possibly have climate justice or a just transition on the basis of capitalism. Impossible. How can you have uh, climate justice or any other kind of uh, social and economic justice in a society where 10 billionaires own as much wealth as half the world's population and are increasing on a daily basis? their share of the world's wealth. It, it, I, so if we want climate justice, we want a just transition, and that's essential. We're going to have to break with capitalism and move in the direction of production for human need, not profit. So that's, and I think that's all to me, that's crucial to being an eco-socialist.
0: Yeah, perfect. And just kind of uh, interrelated to this point uh the pamphlet outlines how both the climate crisis and the ongoing pandemic are caused by and in some ways intrinsically linked to the capitalist system and its attitude deems externalities you might just elaborate on this relationship as i know it's discussed in in one of the chapters
1: first of all let me just say about the climate crisis i mean Jess said earlier that when she was studying in 2002, some, some professor or something said this is just a hypothesis or it's speculative or we're not clear about this. When you look back, you find that actually the basic science of this has been known for generations uh, and many decades. Of course, that science was sidelined. It was ignored because of the vested interest. But there has been no serious doubt about it for at least 20 years. I can't remember when Al Gore's An Incontrovertible Truth came out. Maybe Jess will, will remember. But there was abundance of evidence in that. It was extremely weak on what to do about it. Just write to your congressman or something or pray or something. <laughs> but, but the evidence was there. And the world's leaders have known about this uh, and understood it, actually. I remember reading... A very clear explanation of global warming by one Tony Blair. He laid it all out. And yet they have done nothing. And that tells you something. It's not that they need more NGOs to explain it to them. And it's not even that they just don't care. It is that the priorities of the system prevent them tackling it. Because they can't get over the fact that every, the world is dominated by giant corporations who will go bankrupt if they're not making their fossil fuel profits next week. And they, the whole system is geared towards these people. So in terms of the climate crisis, you know, tackling capitalism, challenging capitalism and necessity. Now, COVID, also import, this is important because I think to most people, it seems like there's no connection. COVID is just something that happened by accident. But actually, some uh, the some of the best Marxists on this, actually, people like Mike Davis and Rob Wallace who've been studying this, A, they predicted it. Mike Davis, the, uh American from uh, Southern California who, who has written on many aspects of American capitalism, also wrote on um, uh, avian flu, which he called the, the Monster at Our Door. He's got a new book out called The Monster Enters in which he foresaw that we were heading for an age of pandemics. And Rob Wallace, in his book, Big Farms Make Big Flu, analysed exactly why this was the case. And it comes from two ways in which capitalism relates to nature directly. That is through the encroachment on wild areas and through giant factory farming. The encroachment on wild uh, areas means increases exposure to viruses that are in the animal world uh, and big farming and the distribution that goes with it as it sends food all over the world and so on and animals all over the world and and so on, spreads it like wildfire. So the, the, the development of pathogens, of deadly viruses, and they're spreading them at a... Um, enormous rate is built into modern agribusiness and the logic of capitalism. And again, if you were doing something that is killing people off in their hundreds of thousands, millions around the world, you would expect normal, sane politicians to stop it. But they don't stop. They carry on because they're driven by the logic of capitalism. And I would go further. I would say that... um, Just a couple of other concepts here, I would say both the climate crisis and the COVID crisis are different expressions of two things that are fundamental for capitalism. One is alienation from nature. Marx diagnosed that in 1844, that he saw that alienation of human labor would bring about alienation of people from each other, from our species and from nature, and is explicit on this in what like wrote called The Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844. And secondly, if another thing that Marx developed as a concept in capital was that there was a metabolic rift between human beings and nature. The ordinary exchange that had existed between human society and nature over thousands and thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, was broken by industrial capitalism. And we are seeing these chickens coming home Mm -hmm. to roost uh, in the world today.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think John laid it out really well. One thing I would just say is like both climate change and COVID stem from the exploitation of nature in all the ways that John was saying. And I think it's important for people to recognize that capitalism sees nature as a free gift right? Um, And I mean, like all of nature, from the trees, to the animals, the water, the minerals that they dig up, all of that is a free gift for capitalists to take, to extract from, to radically transform, and never mind the consequences. And the reason I mention that is because it kind of goes back to what John was saying before about regulated versus unregulated capitalism, the idea that you can tax this away you know, that you can just make capitalism care more or account more for the destruction that it does to nature is to ignore the history of how capitalism developed in the first place and its reliance on nature being a free gift, that it doesn't need to pay for its taking, nor does it need to pay for the consequences of of its destruction.
0: In um in one of the sections, uh, economic crisis and capitalism, you both outline how the capitalist system operates in a way that guarantees repeated boom and bust cycles, and that this feeds into like an inability to address the climate. Because you might just elaborate on this process and, and kind of discuss.
1: Right. Let me let me start not quite with your question, but just as an angle from it, and say mm. that. Current economic crisis, which is in some ways unprecedented and I- immense, again will be presented as simply a consequence of COVID and therefore a kind of act of God. Uh, you know, well, there was this health crisis that caused it. Uh, if you look back at the different crises of capitalism, you find that almost always the mainstream explanation is some external or one off factor. Well, 2008, they said at the time. First of all, they said, well, it was the collapse of the subprime market in America, as if it, that just happened autonomously. Or, or well, now in Ireland they'd say, well, it was because the banks weren't regulated properly. We've set proper regulation in, so it won't happen again, and so on. You go back to the start of the return of crises to the system after the long post-war boom in the 70s. That was the oil crisis. It was that the OPEC and the oil-producing countries got together and used their power, put up the price of oil, so that produced the crisis. There's always something like a one-off, uh, except that the one-offs keep repeating, and the one-offs keep repeating because, actually, capitalism has crises built into it, all uh, right, which and there's... Um, two aspects to this i think uh one is that there's the boom slump cycle which has been going more or less for the last you know 200 years best part of the last 200 years that you know there's a a, a fairly predictable cycle it has variations on nothing works absolutely mechanically you can sometimes have longer booms and so on or shorter but fairly fairly repetitively You get cycles of production, uh, expanding, then reaching a stage of overproduction, then cutting back, then a recession or or slump, and then recovery and so on. Uh, But there's also another factor behind this, which sounds counterintuitive, because we've always gone about how much profits they're making, but that is the tendency of the rate of profit to decline, uh, which is also built into uh, that. Someone hearing this for the first time would be well entitled to say, how can you talk about profits declining? You look at Jeff Bezos, how much money he's making and made this year and so on. But we're not talking here about the sums of money that capitalists have got. We're talking about um, profit as a ratio to investment, to outlay. And what Marx showed is that there is a long-term tendency for that to decline because profit comes from the exploitation of labor, but capitalists in competition with one another... Uh, invest more and more in fixed capital, constant capital, and, and um, uh, that reduces labour as a proportion of uh, of total outlay and therefore profit as a total outlay. Again, this is just a tendency, it's not mechanical, but it, that tendency interacts with the um, cyclical nature of crisis. And the current crisis caused, in quotation marks, by COVID was really occasioned by triggered by the COVID pandemic but the system was heading for a, a major crisis anyway and again the serious Marxist economists have been warning that this was heading it in this direction all the signs were that it was heading in that direction um, anyway so these things these things are again related to the fundamentals of the system the last thing I want to say on this is and again this is hard I think for people to get their heads around but if you faced a COVID pandemic which or a similar pandemic in a socialist society, a society not based on production profit. And that could happen, of course. You know, socialism is not a panacea that solves all human problems like a stroke of the pen, not at all. So that could happen. But that would not necessarily produce a slump in production. It is in a society where production is for profit that it has these multiplying, multiple, negative multiplier effects. It means if you shut down part of the economy, the rest of the economy tends to collapse and so on. Because it's all geared, it, it is all geared uh, to profit. Uh, if you are producing for human need, it wouldn't necessarily have this consequence of a generalised economic crisis. So I think that needs to be said as well.
2: Yeah, I think I would also add to that that I mean, at the moment we're in a bust, right? we're we're heading into and are in many areas in a global recession um and so like the the rush to invest in the most profitable outlet which is just inherent to capitalism regardless of our needs means they're investing in the very industries that are burning our planet like even though it's crystal clear we need investment in public transport not just because of climate change but also because of covid like we need to move people around in a more spaced out way so you need more public transport you know they're not investing in it and they're not investing in the low carbon jobs that i mentioned before in the public sector teachers doctors and all of that Um, but if you look at the stimulus packages that are coming from the eu and the us and china all of these include money for oil and gas right at the time when we should be rapidly divesting reducing all subsidies for fossil fuels to zero But they're connected to the fossil fuel economy. They feel the only way to get out of this recession is to invest in the resources um, to build the economy back up, to get it growing again regardless of the impact on nature, the impact on climate, the impact on all of us. It's the same with food production and the recent um, common agricultural policy that was passed by the EU parliament. It included funds for big farmers with no green strings attached and rightfully the environmental movement was up in arms about this because it's a huge contributor to emissions. Um, And then recently we saw the news about the vaccine coming out from Pfizer I mean, one of the areas of the stock market which saw a huge rebound was oil. You know, and so it just those are all indicators of how capitalism and pro-capitalist establishment politicians everywhere keep us on this path. Um, and it it doesn't matter if you're in a bust or a boom, they will always make excuses for for why we need to continue using fossil fuels. And they'll do a little bit here and a little bit there. They'll pass their European Green Deal that commits this or that. But when it comes down to it, they continue investing um, in what is most profitable in the short term, and that is fossil fuels.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think that's true. Just to to say that it's an irony that probably the only thing that has even had any effect on carbon emissions of all the talk that's been about it is having a global recession but the moment you have a global recession every capitalist is bent immediately on how to resume normal growth normal growth which is heading us to catastrophe so they are completely trapped by the logic of their own system whatever they whatever they may be i don't know what they believe in their hearts but it doesn't matter they're trapped uh in the in this process
0: yeah and i think you can even see that now uh the government are starting to like manage expectations that no we can't do anything at this stage uh given we're facing into a recession and even the green party in their last indian government would have said we couldn't have implemented anything radical because we were facing into the crash then too so it's just a, a repeated cycle and you can see that kind of changing attitude and how it's played down because of uh, just moving to a, a, a separate section, it's outlined in the in the pamphlet that an eco-socialist approach has to be intersectional. Why is this the case and, and what would such a, an approach look like?
2: I think it's important, firstly, for eco-socialists to be clear that we are for the liberation of all of humanity and that that starts with the most oppressed. We want to end the horror of police killings and violence towards Black people, the sexism, abuse and violence women and LGBTQ people face. We want to end all the discriminations that oppressed people deal with day in and day out. And we recognize that not only are these things horrible and deadly, that capitalism actually cannot function without it. And this is something that John touched on earlier, like capitalism relies on the super exploitation of women, of immigrants, of black and brown people all over the world. And by super exploitation, I mean, underpaid, overworked, working in unsafe and unhealthy conditions. It relies on um, like a hierarchy of pay you know, saying low-wage workers deserve to be in poverty, you deserve to make a little bit more, that women make less than men, that black women make less than white women, that immigrants make less than so-called citizens, and so on. It, it means that capitalism can keep us divided while they reap the benefits of paying huge swaths of people less for their labor. It also rests on the unpaid labor that's done in the home. Um, all the cooking, all the cleaning, the childcare, the elderly care that's mostly done by women. Capitalism needs that so that workers can show up to the office or to the factory or to the shop, ready to work under the conditions that the boss says they have to do. It doesn't pay for any of that. It expects that to happen already for free. It's kind of like how it expects a free gift from nature. It expects all this free work done by families. Um, And so it's not just a matter of working class people are divided, you know, And I think if you look over in America and you look at the elections there and you look at the support for Trump, you can see that people are divided, that there are racist people, there are people that hold sexist views, all of that. Um, There's homophobia, there's transphobia. But also it is the case that working class people, because of all of these oppressions, are exhausted, are stressed out, are Mm -hmm. worn down by all of it. So the environmental movement, the climate justice movement, eco-socialists, we have to stand clearly with Black Lives Matter, with Ni Una Mas, with the abortion rights movements, wherever they take place, with trans rights, with marriage equality, with indigenous peoples and their struggle, with the fight for freedom and self-determination of oppressed people everywhere. And in that way, you can build the multi-gender, multi-racial, international working class movement that we need to challenge and overthrow the system. And I think the other thing I'd say is that it really also has to recognize the historic responsibility of those that are living in wealthier countries, that are wealthy because of history, because of colonialism, because of plundering the countries in the global south. And so we have to... In our countries fight as hard as we can to get to zero emissions by 2030 or sooner if we can. 2050 is way too late. Um, you know the US, the UK, a lot of European countries are historically responsible for more emissions, for more of the damage um, and so we have to fight to get there sooner to give everyone a chance at survival and not least those who, that have contributed the least to the problem um, and I think also, you know, the in the in the case of indigenous peoples, who have been fighting back the whole time to defend the land, defend the water, and show a way of living in harmony with nature, we have to absolutely fight and struggle to stand not only alongside them, but fight to give them an opportunity again at survival. Um, and that means getting there much much sooner than twenty fifty.
1: Both Jess and I uh, are involved with the Global Eco-Socialist Network. It was interesting that um, when we drew up um, the the basic principles of the Global Eco-Socialist Network, um, they were minimal. They were kind of what are the minimum things that we could put that most people, large number of people around the globe from different traditions would agree with or or would would, uh, accept uh, as a basis for organisation, that's people who come from different traditions in the socialist movement. But we did include a statement on the principles of intersectionality that we are opposed to all the oppressions that just listed from there from the beginning. Because I don't think any movement in the 21st century of the left for, that is progressive or anti-capitalist and so on uh, can cannot uh, uh, adopt those principles. But there's also been a a shift that I've seen in my lifetime which I think is interesting in this regard. Um, I think that even if you go back to the beginnings of the socialist movement and the beginnings of the Marxism, you know, to Marx and Engels themselves, you will find that they were pretty clear on the need for um, socialists to oppose oppression and to stand with people who are oppressed. Their language wouldn't have necessarily been the same today, but pretty much they understood this, and certainly that was also true in the communist movement at the beginning when it started. You know, sort of with Lenin and the Communist International and so on. They understood that it all 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 that went like so many other things got uh, ruined by Stalinism, but that was understood at that time. But what I thought, if I think back to my own experience, say, in Britain in the 1980s, there would have been a sense that, on the one hand, there's the workers' movement, largely led by white men, largely consisting of white males. And then there would have been on the oppressed in various forms. And it was necessary to argue with and in the workers' movement, you had to stand with the oppressed. But they were seen as sort of a slightly external, I think, the minor strike. The miners were one to a progressive attitude towards gay liberation. The, you can see it in the film, Pride. It's very moving on. I saw this happen over gender questions. The beginning of the strike, the miners in Britain, they had a, used to have pinups in the miners magazine that, that came out that had gone by the end of the strike because the role of the women in the strike was so magnificent. But the women were by and large housewives. They weren't women miners, they were housewives. Uh, Uh, And so on, and the same in relation to black people, you could see, I I saw the attitudes changing, but the world has changed since the 1980s. The working class is now led by women, by people of colour, will undoubtedly contain, you know, uh, out lesbian and gay people out to trans people and so on. I, I, you could see it, it, it was, you know, in one of the biggest strikes that we've seen in, um, in Ireland recently, the, the, the nurses' strike on the picket lines. It was absolutely clear that these things uh, uh, were, the, were the case. If you'd had any racism allowed in that strike, it would have destroyed the strike from day one. So intersectionality is part, it seems to me, of any great people power movement, of any workers' movement, is going to be, by its nature... In Ireland, in America, in anywhere else is going to be of its nature. And you've got, if we don't, um, you can't deal with that problem by putting it to one side. You can only deal with that problem on the basis of opposing the oppression. And so this is a matter of, uh, to my mind, of um, absolute necessity for eco-socialism, for the environmental movement, for the labor movement, for any progressive movement that it, ha- that it, it has to understand this or, or it. We'll we'll get nowhere.
0: Yeah, I think a, a lot has been said on how crucial it is to kind of dismantle the barriers that the system puts up. Just in order to achieve that change, just moving moving away from, uh, or or more moving on to kind of the, some of the solutions discussed in the pamphlet. The pamphlet goes on to discuss some eco-socialist policies, which would have a massive impact in terms of both combating climate change and improving people's lives. What are some of these solutions discussed in the pamphlet?
1: Yeah. Um... I think that if you if you look at how the question specifically of dealing with climate change is presented by the government, mm-hmm. not only the government, by some sections of the environmental movement, especially those associated with the Green Party and in Ireland and internationally, it's presented to ordinary people uh, in terms of you must change your behaviour. Uh, you need to you need to be incentivized to change your behavior the way they always try and incentivize working-class people by penalizing them. Um, you don't incentivize them the way they incentivize bankers by giving them huge bonuses. They incentivize them by taxing them. Uh, and you must make various sacrifices. We must make sacrifices, say, people, as they drive around in their Mercedes-Benzes and go on and jet off in their private jets to their islands, you know, uh, we must all make tighten our belts. And I think that um, when the question of dealing with climate change is presented to people that way, they are understandably enraged and inclined. Therefore, there's the danger that they will see the whole thing as some kind of new middle class scam designed to rip them off. And it's only very important, therefore, that the environmental movement does not adopt this approach. This focuses in particular on the question of um, uh, carbon taxes, which won't work anyway, but they will not only work, they will be utterly counterproductive in terms of uh, building what is necessary, which is a mass people's movement to to challenge the system and to, cl- to and, and to stop climate change. So, um, you know, we, we have to distinguish ourselves, I think, very, very sharply. And this means... Not just, I think, uh, means both having a general program of demands that uh, will benefit ordinary people, but also finding ways that we integrate this with the kind of things people are actually fighting over. If you take just simply the question of buses, um, working class people in Ireland fight over defending their bus services. When Bus Connects came out, there was a huge reaction around where, where, where I live and Probably, I, I, I don't know uh, where Jess is, from, in Tala or out there and so on. But there was a huge reaction uh, in Dublin South Central of ordinary people about defending their bus services that were, were being taken away. There have been many campaigns over bus, uh, bus services. And, it, uh, and we can say in this situation, yeah, well, actually, not only do you need that bus number 16 or 19 or whatever it is to get to work or to get to the hospital and so on but the planet needs more and better public transport it needs free public transport so you don't have to drive a car Mm -hmm. and so you could you what i'm saying is that you can if you put forward we as eco-socialists put forward these demands that both tackle the climate crisis and relate to things people actually want and need in the here and now, we can, I think, spread the um, uh, eco-socialist message and make that part of the consciousness of of working class people. And it applies on many fronts. There was a big movement in Ireland a few years ago um, to defend our forests, to save our forests, and against the privatization of, of culture. 4,000 people turned up somewhere in Avondale uh, and so on to to, to print. There's a long record of this and we need to build the links between those concrete things and uh, the the global question of climate change and the question of a a socialist solution.
2: So I think clearly we need to get emissions zero, right? But the question is how are we going to do that? You know, if we recognize that capitalism, this global socioeconomic system is the problem and we need to overcome this system, including all the people that are benefiting from the system, which are a tiny minority, but they're in power, then we need to ask ourselves, how are we going to build the kind of mass movements we need? Um, and then I think that leads to another question. What are people willing to fight for? You know, what do people need? And I think... If you look at for example the climate movement in America it's been incredibly inspiring to see the growth of a movement for you know for combining the fight against climate change for the kinds of policies that everybody needs from healthcare to housing to transport all those things and I think we can take inspiration from that and apply that here apply that everywhere really to try to build the kind of movements that are necessary to really challenge capital So, for example, we talked about we're heading into a recession. So clearly we need jobs. But what kind of jobs? You know, we don't need jobs in fossil fuel industries. We don't need jobs in dirty industries. We don't need jobs, you know, um, that are going to continue us on down this path. We need jobs in care industries. We need more teachers, more nurses, more doctors, more bus drivers. We need people building more Uh, wind turbines, all those things. Those are the kinds of jobs that we need. So we would call for that. We also need to talk about what kind of lives do we want to live? You know, I think COVID was a bit of a glimpse of things being a little bit slower, particularly in the first lockdown, you know, people having more time with their family and their friends. um, And that, you know, if you weren't commuting to work every day, then you had more time. And I think it was, you know, for a lot of people, kind of an eye opener that like, I don't want to go back to normal. Normal means rushing all the time. So one of the things that we talk about is a four day week, you know, or a 30 hour working week, where we don't see ourselves constantly tethered to the workplace where we just constantly have to be on all the time. We, we reduce that massively, which obviously increases the number of jobs we need number of people that we need to fill those jobs and do that work. I think also, we need more transport. And we've already talked about that. Um we want to transform our towns and our cities to be friendly to pedestrians and cyclists, not cars. That means you have to you have to plan them differently. I think largely we want to be looking for and fighting for the kinds of things that are going to improve our lives now, but are connected to um, building a path towards an ecologically sustainable future. And that also address the legacy of racism and sexism um, in all of, uh, all of its different forms. I mean, I talked earlier about how women are largely doing a lot of this unpaid work in the home, whether it's childcare, elderly care, cooking, cleaning, all of those things. If you had a public childcare system where the workers were well-paid, then you would relieve that burden for women who want that, you know, who want to work um, and make it really accessible So I think we need to, within the environmental movement, within the climate justice movement, we need to think about policies and demands that are gonna connect to what people need in the here and now, but put us on that path towards a more sustainable future. Um, And then the other thing that I'd say that's really, really crucial, and to me, which makes it a socialist Green New Deal, not just a Green New Deal, but one that really has socialist policies within it. And that is that we need to fight for control over the resources. Yes, we demand that the government invest more in public transport, that they invest in housing, all that. But we know ultimately that they're under pressure from business to do it in the private market. You know, Um, we need to fight for control so that we can determine what the outcome is, so that the public housing happens on public land, not through private developers, that we just give them the land, that the public transport is, you know, it's ours it's not owned by a private company who's trying to get us to pay more and more money um because ultimately you know we're the ones who do all the work we're ultimately the ones that are going to pay for the fossil fuels burning the planet trashing the oceans so socialism is about working people being in control and i think when we're putting forward solutions to dealing with the here and now we always have to be looking towards working people being in collective democratic ownership and control over those reasons, um, because you know otherwise, what will happen?
0: yeah, perfect, um, and then just I think two uh, smaller questions, so just at the moment, given the pandemic, I think noticed that the environmental movement in about a low ebb, just where do you assess where the environmental movement is at the moment and, and what do you see as its necessary steps
1: yeah and um, i I't I really told suggest about this we may not necessarily agree on this i don't know um i think that what you said about where um you know the stalling of aspects at least of the environmental movement particularly extinction rebellion that was in the forefront a year or so Mm. ago uh um partly due to the pandemic is true it's obviously true it was a movement built above all on activism the inspiration for the movement in Ireland and elsewhere was the fact that many thousands of people were put on the streets of London and stopped London, at least partially stopped London functioning for, uh, for, uh, for a number of days. It was very dramatic and very impressive. And that gave rise to the movement in Ireland. And They had aspirations maybe to do something similar, never quite achieved it, but had aspirations to do something similar. And so when you can't do that, that creates a problem. Uh, but I think also, and this this is a matter of judgment, I think also there were some inherent problems that have led to uh, 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 difficulties for the movement. Um, I think there was a belief which is, I've seen many occasions on, with new movements that arise, that they have a magic key to solving all the problems that somehow or other nobody ever noticed before. Um, Jess mentioned Occupy and how he thought we're going to solve everything when Occupy happened in America. I remember the people who did the Occupy in Ireland, but there were groups of people who thought that if they sat in down in front of the central bank mm-hmm. on Dame Street, the world would come to their feet. We said, let's relate to the trade unions. They said, ha, uh, huh, trade unions? Ha! Huh, the trade unions should come to us. Um, the trade unions tried to came, come to them, and they weren't very interested. But I mean, but they thought they had. They thought that just by occupying a square, whether it's whether it was at the central bank or Zuccotti Park or somewhere else, in Egypt there were people who thought if you occupied the square, and this was on a, you know, enormously larger scale. Uh, but if a million people occupied Tarrier Square. That would do it. That would produce everything. That would produce the whole change. The whole system would collapse. doesn't work like that. Um, And I think that XR, for example, here, believed that they got a solution. It was all worked out by Roger Hallam or somebody or other. That was you get 3.5%. This was proved by science. You get 3.5% of the population on the streets, which you will do if you just keep telling them to come. And that will, the government will fall at your feet. And this, uh, that was then linked with the idea as well that since all these problems have been solved and we know what they are, we don't need to talk about politics. We don't need to have political debate. In fact, political debate is something we're beyond politics, was the phrase that, that they used. We don't need that. All you discuss is shall we be. Uh, you know in this square or that square on that street or the other the logistics of things that's what you Mm -hmm. want to discuss you don't want to discuss ideas now that works very well and is very attractive for about for a few months but the moment you run into problems it gives you difficulties I think and once the pandemic hit that comes home to roost because you then can't do what you were going to do, and you're you're kind of thrown back. So I think think that all of these things are a problem. But I want to say this as well, though, that we have to understand here, that these are temporary, not just because the pandemic is temporary, but because this is an overarching problem facing the whole world and cannot go away. Uh, Other movements that we've been involved in, you can win, and then the movement subsides, you know, repeal, for example. Or water charges, or you can lose, and the movement subsides. The movement uh, over the environment and climate change cannot win in some way in six months Mm -hmm. or nine months. This problem, as we say, is built into the system. And it cannot be lost in six months or nine months. This problem is going to be with humanity um, for decades to come. It could be lost. In 30 years' time, it could be, but it isn't going to be lost in the next few years. And it is global. So the difficulties that exist in one place at one time will be overcome because millions of people are going to move on this across the world and then we can learn from them and so on. So I think, yes, there are difficulties at the moment, but it's a good time to be thinking about ideas and discussing ideas. And I think that's one of the things our pamphlet asks people to do. So I hope. I'm hoping that people who have been involved in the move uh, will take time to consider the ideas presented here and to discuss them because I think that um, they're going to be needed in uh, uh, in the months and years ahead.
2: When I was first protesting or demanding I think it was green job recovery or something in 2008 when Obama first got elected like there were 10 of us on a corner, (laughs) you know, there was almost nobody there. And it was my first environmental protest and I was a bit sad about it. I remember talking to a friend of mine who was a bit older and he said, oh yeah, 10 people, that's really good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But now there are millions of people all over the world, mostly young people taking action. And we saw that in the Fridays for Future Strikes. It was just incredible to see the reach in, you know, 180 countries, you know, and the demand being system change as unclear as some people may be on what that is, that coming to the fore, moving away from individual change, all of that, that's that's incredible. Um, I think also we should not forget the important developments in terms of the trade unions connecting with the climate justice movement. If you look, for example, in South Africa, and the uh, big South African unions joining in with the climate strikes in October. I think they are the signs of what could be in the future and what is necessary in terms of marrying the workers movement and the powerful trade unions um, with their capacity for organization and resources um, to shut things down and really demand the kind of change that we need. But I think what's really needed in the here and now, particularly you know, in my experience in the environmental movement in Ireland is a discussion about what are we fighting for? You know, we're all clear on like, what needs to stop? We need to stop the emissions. But there's a there's a lot less clarity on like, why are the emissions continuing? Like what's really at the root of it? And then, you know, what exactly are we fighting for? What What system do we want to replace this system with? And my experience in kind of the discussions in and around the environmental movement is that those questions aren't really there. They're not being asked and they're not being discussed. And they need to be because they really have a huge impact on the kind of actions that we take, the demands that we put forward. Are we building the movement? Are we keeping it tiny? Um, So I'm really inspired by what I've seen in the past 10 years, you know, starting from 10 people on a corner to, you know, millions of people joining in. I mean, the climate strike a few years ago in the city centre was just... How many young people were there joined by um, older people like myself. Uh, so I'm really inspired by that but I, I do think what's necessary is politics, discussion about anti-capitalist politics and socialist solutions.
1: I, I mean the pamphlet begins with the statement eco-socialism is an idea whose time has come. Um, I, think, I think that it fits in the present situation and that it, internationally and in Ireland, more and more people are um, identifying with that kind of, uh, with those arguments and, and those perspectives. And I think that's a very important. I mean, Jess referred to the amazing uh, school students movement and the climate strikes. I mean, when there were... I don't know, ten to fifteen thousand people turned up at Stevens Green. It was extraordinary. It shows you what happens when something, when an idea catches fire. That, now, uh, that's not going to happen at the moment, and it won't necessarily happen in the same form. But those people are still there, and those ideas are still there. Um, in in this context, uh, again, uh, you know, the pandemic makes things very difficult. But in the global eco-socialist network, we've discussed the idea of um, if the COP26 conference takes place in November in Glasgow, um, the possibility of uh, spreading from just a school student strike or even a college student strike to also a strike in workplaces, particularly because that conference will be a focus for the movement The upper end of the movement, by which I mean the upper end of the NGOs and War on Want and Oxfam and this, and a lot of the corporations who are actually trying to block change will all focus on what goes on in the halls of Glasgow themselves and getting into the conference and lobbying and so on. I don't think that should be our focus. I think we should use that as a focus for action from below. I think if you're in the UK, that may well mean getting to Glasgow and putting 100,000 people on the streets. But if you're in Rio or Brazil on the the Amazon uh, district, or you're in Ecuador, or you're in Australia, or you're in South Africa or wherever, you know, in you're in the rest of the world, even if you're in Ireland, you're not going to travel in huge numbers to Glasgow, but we can do something. And I think the the idea of a a strike then Again, you know, it's all COVID-dependent, but the idea of agitating the strike, right they can link up with the trade unions, as just said, with workers' action. There's no reason why it doesn't exclude all sorts of other demonstrative actions. People can occupy squares and sit in O'Connell Street and, or O'Connell Bridge, or they can do all a thousand different forms of action in, in the context of the idea that we all say, let uh, fight for uh, our future um on uh, on a, a day or a week or you know how it works out so we're not trying to prescribe the detailed forms of this to the movement but saying let's use this as a focus for developing that mass people power working class action uh, uh ar- around that and i think that um you know, it's central to eco-social, all the arguments that we're putting about what kind of change you need, what the cause of the problem is in the system and so on, um, are also linked to this idea that we need, we need mass popular action from below. So I'm hoping that we can move in that direction, because I think if the more that happens, the more people will also question the system they live under and look for alternatives.
0: Yeah, here's hoping that that takes place. And just on the need for discussion, I think that this pamphlet is a a great step in building on like a discussion. But I think at this stage, we can can leave it here. And uh, I'll just say thanks a million to Jess and John. It was a real pleasure and a great conversation.
2: Great to be here.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Cheers. All right. Thanks a million to everyone for listening. As mentioned before, I'll leave a link to where the pamphlet can be purchased and links to Rupture Magazine and the Irish Marxist Review. A link will also be included for the Global Eco-Socialist Network, which listeners can join if interested. Just to highlight again, those who subscribe on Patreon over the next week will receive a free copy of the pamphlet on top of our other rewards. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.